0: You're listening to Practical Ethics Bites with me, Nigel Warburton. And me, David Edmonds. Practical Ethics Bites is made in association with Oxford's Uhero Centre for Practical Ethics. Presumably, you were free to listen to this podcast. Nobody is holding a gun to your head and ordering you to pay attention. But was your decision to listen really free? What exactly is free will? And what is the relationship between free will and morality? Neil Leverie spoke to Practical Ethics Bites also without jurists. Neil Levy welcome to Practical Ethics Bites. Thanks Nigel. The topic we're going to focus on is free will and moral responsibility. Could you just begin by saying how those two notions are linked? Most philosophers understand the notion of free will as the power
1: that makes us morally responsible for our actions. We have a power of choosing. Animals have a power of choosing too. But we have a more complex power, a power to respond to reasons. And when we exercise that power in the right context, using it well
0: or using it badly, we are responsible for our actions. So my cat goes out and catches a bird. I don't like seeing a beautiful bird getting killed by a cat. But I don't blame my cat. I don't hold it morally responsible. Whereas if my neighbour went out and strangled my cat, I would be absolutely disgusted and hold that person fully morally responsible for their choice. So we think that most human
1: beings, there are exceptions, are unlike cats because they can understand the reasons against strangling a cat. They can understand the moral reasons against strangling a cat. And they can control their behavior in the light of those reasons. So if they choose to strangle the cat, then they're choosing to set those moral reasons aside. And that's the kind of choice that makes people blameworthy for their actions.
0: And this comes through in theology as well, the so-called free will defence for the existence of moral evil is the notion that a good God gave human beings the power of choice over their actions and held them responsible for that. And the whole notion of divine retribution and punishment is connected with the idea that human beings have choice and that's somehow better than being robots, automata. Right. So a benevolent God creates the best of all possible worlds, a world in which people
1: have freedom to choose, even if they use it to choose evil is a better world than a world in which people don't have freedom to choose. That's the idea anyway.
0: So it's clear from what we've said so far that the notion of moral responsibility in most people's eyes is intimately connected with free choice. We're not passive. We're not automata. We actually genuinely have free will. That seems to be right. I mean, there's
1: some empirical evidence now. So philosophers are now going out and checking what ordinary people believe. And they seem to think that other agents are responsible because they have the power to choose and they have a power to choose in the light of reasons.
0: And we see that also with this notion that some people are less culpable for the bad consequences of their actions. For instance, People with severe psychiatric problems are not treated in the same way by the criminal justice system as those who, we assume, have control over their actions. The law recognises two kinds of defences to criminal charges
1: turning on psychiatric conditions, and they map well onto big debates in the free will literature. So there are defences that turn on people's power of reasons. Do they understand what they're doing? And there are defenses turning on the power of volition. Do they have control over what they're doing? Can we have an example of each of those? It'd be useful to clarify that. So the standard example of a problem with cognitive control, of understanding what you're doing, is psychosis, schizophrenia. People with schizophrenia may fail to understand the nature of their action. I read about one case in which a schizophrenic man knocked over a pedestrian believing the pedestrian was a barrel and he was driving a tank on an obstacle course. This is clearly a person who doesn't understand the nature of their action and seems to be excused for that action on that basis. More controversially, some people understand what they're doing but seem to have trouble controlling what they're doing. The so-called impulse control disorders where people respond compulsively. Tourette's is one example which I suppose is not very controversial. So somebody with Tourette's might swear at a passerby and they seem not to be able to control what they're doing. They understand it perfectly well. We're disposed, most people I think at least, are disposed to excuse
0: them or at least to blame them much less because they can't control their behaviour. There are cases of addiction as well where somebody might have made an initial choice to take a drug or to get drunk. But then once they're under the influence of these chemicals, they're not fully responsible for their actions. That brings out the importance of direct moral responsibility. So there are many
1: cases in which people are charged with drink driving. And maybe when they're drink driving, they don't actually understand fully the nature of what they're doing. But we're still disposed to blame them because they made choices earlier in the evening maybe – To take the car to the bar, for instance, there's a scene in North by Northwest where the character's put behind the wheel of a car when he's very drunk. We don't blame him because he didn't make any choices leading up to that. Addiction is very hard to understand fully. We don't understand the nature of how it impairs choice, whether it makes actions compulsive or whether it functions more like duress through the pains of withdrawal. And we don't understand the extent to which it's appropriate to blame people on the basis that they made choices that made them addicts.
0: All of these are highly controversial issues. It seems that from what you're saying, moral responsibility and also legal responsibility are not a matter of all or nothing, but rather... There's a continuum that we talk about greater and lesser culpability, greater and lesser moral responsibility for our actions, depending on circumstances and the kinds of things that precede our actions. That seems to be right.
1: If you think about how we develop, we start out as children who are not responsible for their actions. We end up as adults who, all going well, are entirely responsible for our actions or at least occasionally entirely responsible for our actions – In between, it seems much more likely that our degree of responsibility grows rather than at some point goes from nothing to full responsibility. Presumably, our power to understand the reasons to which we respond grows throughout childhood and into adulthood. And there's also evidence to suggest that our power to control our behavior, to inhibit impulses, develops
0: across the lifespan. All of this presupposes that we genuinely have free will. I mean, how could you have responsibility if you didn't have some degree of choice over what you did? But there are people who deny that we have free will at all. There are. There are a number of
1: different reasons why people have given, but of course the central one is a worry about determinism. That's been the centre of the free will debate for 2,000 years. Can we have free will if we are physical beings And the particles of which we are made are physical particles interacting according to laws of nature, which are deterministic, so that how we act and how we decide is in some sense settled before we decide.
0: There is another historically important problem as well connected with this, which is the idea that our actions are predetermined because God must know what we're going to do. So if God knows what we're going to do, there's a sense in which we couldn't ourselves choose what to do. Yes, and in the Middle Ages, that was the central topic in the free will debate.
1: Does God's foreknowledge conflict with our free will? Some people have also worried about logical truths. They're saying it's true now or it's false now that I will drink tea tomorrow. But if it's true or false now, then it seems like I don't have a power to decide tomorrow
0: whether I drink tea. And there's a more recent challenge to free will as well. From neuroscience, almost every discovery made by neuroscientists recently seems to suggest that the conscious, willing bit of our psyche isn't the bit that causes our actions.
1: Yes, a very famous experiment, some of the most famous experiments in all of neuroscience, purported to show that our consciousness of willing and action actually followed our beginning to act the neural processes that will cause the act, by some 250, 300 milliseconds. A tiny gap, but any gap is too big a gap, it seems. If we don't consciously choose our actions, many people have worried,
0: then we can't be responsible for them. And failing to be responsible for them shows that they're not free. So this is the famous experiment carried out by Benjamin Libet. He purported to show that if I raise my hand, it feels as if it's a choice that I make but actually the triggering mechanism starts before I have the conscious experience of willing. Yes, that's the worry.
1: Libet's results have not held up all that well to empirical scrutiny. I don't think it really matters whether he was right or not. I want to know whether those mechanisms that cause my actions respond to reasons, and I want to know whether they respond to my reasons. Now, if there was a huge gap, and when I thought about what to do, it made no difference to what I did because I'd already decided, then that would be a threat. But there isn't. There's a tiny gap. There's no time to think in a quarter of a second, and that's the order of the gap which Libet purported to show. If our actions respond to reasons in just the way we want them to, then I don't think it's a big worry. But the determinism worry is that our actions don't respond to reasons in some sense because how we responded was already settled beforehand. So I think that's the more
0: fundamental problem. So this is a problem that for every choice that I make, there's some prior physical state of my brain, as it were, and that was caused by a prior physical state. So there doesn't seem to be room for free will anywhere. That's exactly the problem. It's been well
1: brought out by Peter van Inwagen in his famous consequence argument, which is roughly if everything I do is a consequence of the laws of nature plus the physical states that obtained even before I was born, and I don't get any choice about those laws of nature and I don't get any choice about those physical states, then I don't get any choice about the consequences of those things. And those consequences
0: include my actions. Well, what this seems to suggest is that free will is incompatible with a scientific explanation of our predicament in the universe here. That has been a conclusion many
1: people have drawn. That has been the centre of the free will debate. Compatibilists respond by saying it's a confusion to think that determinism rules out free will. It's confusion because it confuses being caused to act with being compelled to act or being coerced into acting. As long as the mechanisms that actually cause my actions are responding to reasons, then the fact that they're determined to respond in the way they to respond isn't a worry at all. In fact, compatibilists have said, going on the attack, that's exactly what we want. We want the mechanisms that constitute our mind to deterministically respond to the reasons we have. If instead there was some chance they wouldn't respond to the reasons we have, there wouldn't be a good thing, it would be a bad thing. It would make our choices arbitrary.
0: This is quite a difficult notion to grasp, I think, this notion of compatibilism basically says that determinism is compatible with free will, whereas usually they're portrayed as completely opposites. They are usually portrayed as completely opposites,
1: but there's now a lively debate about what ordinary people think. And in fact, the experimental literature paints a very divided picture among ordinary people. They seem attracted to incompatibilist views. So if you ask people... If we're determined, can we be free? They say, no, of course not. But then if you give them a particular case in which they say scientists can predict with perfect accuracy that somebody's going to perform a bad action, and here's a case in which they perform a bad action, are they responsible? They say, yes, of course they are. So whether it's as counterintuitive as incompatibilists have often claimed is no longer
0: clear. But let's get it absolutely clear what compatibilism states. It's saying that when I choose to do something, the fact that my choices can be explained by prior physical states of my body and so on, and my genetics and my environment and all these things, doesn't eliminate from the picture free will. Maybe it's helpful
1: to go back to those two conditions of responsibility we talked about before, the control over one's actions and rationality of one's actions. It doesn't look like determinism is any threat to the rationality of one's actions, unless you're set up badly, so you're deterministically set up to respond to things that aren't reasons at all or to overlook things that are reasons. So the worry has to be about control. That is is it the case that being determined To act really undermines our control. If we think about paradigms of lack of control, they're being pushed by somebody else, they're having a gun being held to our head, being under a desire that's so strong we can't resist it. But actually wanting to do something because it's the right thing to do doesn't seem to be any kind of lack of control at all. But all of that is completely
0: compatible with determinism. For a complete determinist, so-called hard determinist, there's no room for genuine moral responsibility. What about for a compatibilist?
1: Compatibilists tend to think that the debates in ethics should go on as they are, ignoring the free will debate, that free will is a matter of metaphysics and moral philosophy can get on with doing its thing without paying attention. So uh, consequentialism or deontology or virtue ethics, all of these are compatible with compatibilism incompatibilists, people who think that free will is incompatible with determinism, think that there's got to be a revolution in moral philosophy and in political philosophy too, and that the moral philosophers had better pay attention to the free will debate, because many views seem to presuppose that we do have the power to make choices that are free. If we don't have such a power, then many people think that only consequentialism
0: can be viable. Could you just explain why consequentialism is the only viable moral position for an incompatibilist? For most incompatibilists, they think that it's
1: no longer right to blame people because people don't deserve blame. However, they also think that some kind of criminal justice system is required because you can't simply allow murderers to get away with it, as it were, because they would continue to act that way and society might fall apart. So instead, we need to be able to develop analogues of blame which respond not to whether people are really deserving of punishment or blame, but instead focus on what's going to encourage people to behave well in the long term. Now, that might turn out to be allowing some people who perform bad acts to go unpunished because there's no point in punishing them from a consequentialist point of view. That's very controversial. It could even entail punishing people who haven't done anything wrong Because that's what is going to produce the best consequences in the
0: long run. Again, that's very controversial. We've been talking so far as if all incompatibilists believe in determinism. But there's another kind of incompatibilist who believes that we have absolute freedom of choice and that science doesn't explain everything about our existence. There is, as it were, this gap at the centre of a human being, which is our freedom. Contemporary
1: incompatibilists who believe in freedom of choice actually now think they can cite scientific support. And most physicists no longer believe that the universe is deterministic. They think it's indeterministic. And people in the free will debate often appeal to quantum mechanics to ground, as it were, our freedom. It may be that the brain is indeterministic. That's an open question in neuroscience today. We just simply don't study brains on that kind of scale to be able to answer that question, that leaves open the possibility that our choices are undetermined. And some people think that gives us a degree of
0: responsibility that we wouldn't have if our choices were fully determined. Just to get this clear, what you're saying is that many versions of determinism rest on a picture of science which isn't up to date, as it were, with modern physics, that modern physics... Has shown that at subatomic levels, there is a degree of indeterminism in the universe. And because of that, the assumption that everything that we do has a straightforward prior cause and the relationship between cause and effect is predictable is a mistaken one. That's right.
1: Some compatibilists now say that rather than appealing to deterministic science, what they want to do is to make the philosophy compatible with whatever the science turns out to be. They say something as important as moral responsibility shouldn't hang on discoveries that may or may not be made at MIT, whereas libertarians require that the science comes out In the right way. They don't just require that the physics is indeterministic, because there they seem to be on strong ground. They require that the physics is indeterministic in just the right kind of way, that it features in
0: brain processes, for instance, and that's controversial. Now, if there is no genuine blameworthiness, it might actually be quite dangerous to spread the word about that. Well, there is a little bit of empirical work that suggests that
1: that's true. So, subjects who are given A passage to read, mocking free will, we're more likely to cheat on a subsequent exam. One thing we need to untangle is the degree to which having your cherished notion of free will challenged causes bad action over the short term compared to how it's going to affect us over the long term. People might get used to it, as it were, and no longer be threatened. That's an open empirical question right now.
0: Neil Levy, thank you very much. Thank you. For more Practical Ethics Bites, go to www.practicalethics.ox.ac.uk.